Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book In the Arena by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF International, and we are on Chapter 9, Part 3. We're going to find out what happened. It was going to be a free-for-all fight when Ma Pa cried out, I'll sign the papers, and then, of course, it stopped. Oh, he didn't, I cried aghast. Lucas tried to comfort me. He did it, committing it to God, Mama. It was that, or a terrible battle. And think how the Lord would be dishonored if the heathen heard Christians were fighting one another. For Pod John and Kada Sipa still call themselves Christians. The paper is not worth anything anyway. Who would have such a fellow as a pastor now? Fool that he has to do such a thing on this day of all days. In a week's time, the students will be back in their home, and Pod John's Judas trick will be known all over the land. Oh, what a fool Satan makes of his tools. And Lucius flung his arms out wide to show the emptiness wrought. Just then, my weary husband came in, and he looked at Lucius and me, then said to him, You've told her. He sat down and buried his face in his hands, shown on such a platform. As a family, we have always believed that all things work together for good to them that love him. Romans 8.28 I know that modern translations change that verse so that it does not give that promise. The translation may be changed, but the fact remains. God does work all things together for good to them that follow him in loving obedience. I dare to say all things? I dare. That will include sin and dishonorable defeat? Yes. But do not misunderstand me. God will never condone sin or dishonorable defeat. Let us take sin first. David was never the same man after his sin. A certain fearless manliness was gone forever. He vacillated when it came to punishing his sons and so on. The punishment of his sin was not withdrawn. But from the moment David cried to God, I have sinned, the fragments of the wreck of his noble life were gathered into God's hands and quietly wrought into another vessel. Not as beautiful as the first would it have been, but from that moment on, for David, there was hope, a future, loving embrace of his father's arms. A future? Some of his writings, which have most helped succeeding generations, were his penitential psalms. On the Father's bosom, there is always hope. Defeat, when it is not sin, but a sort of, sort of spiritual Dion beyond foo, may also claim Romans 8.28. The enemy comes in overwhelming numbers, and it is not a question of victory, but of which is less dishonorable to the dear Lord. Or perhaps we had tried to do something for him, and it has ended in humiliating failure. Dorothy Bidelake once said to me, Isabel, be careful for nothing, not even your failures. Her words came to me that night at Oak Flat. It seemed sacrilege not to care about what happened at the closing day. But the word careful in the old English sense does not mean concerned. Of course, we should care about success or failure. Careful in the King James Version means full of care. Anxious is how Knox translates. Fret is Way's translation. We are not to fret over our defeats and failures. We are to confess them to commit them to him, to seek the next step under his guidance and to withhold judgment on that matter until God has completed it. Why did God ever allow this? The flesh cries out aghast. I know it did in me that night. Oak Flat Village, where we had labored for 13 years to see a scene like it witnessed that Sunday. I was leveled to the earth in humiliation. I had still to experience what our wonderful Lord can do with defeat. The very first thing this did was to cause us to move. Lucius came in the next morning, and he and other students were going home. Well, Mama, he said, 
You will have to move over to the Village of Olives. You can never stay alone in this village now, can you? No, I would dare not, Lucius, I said sadly. But what shall we do for water and fuel? I've been thinking and I have a plan, he answered. The wood would have to be carried a long way, but I think we can burn charcoal for you. The water? Well, you know there is only a fight for the water at mealtimes. All night it flows, overflows the pool, runs off into the valley and is lost. Now, if we got a bamboo pipe carrying the water, a night's flow would be enough, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. Good. Then I'm going home to build you and Ma Pa a house on my grounds next to Mary's and my big new one. Or you can share a new house if you like. No, I said quickly, I like a place of my own. All right, we'll set right to work, Ma Pa. He asked John, when do you leave on your next trip? Very soon, John replied, but I've arranged for Mrs. Kirkman to come and stay until Christmas and New Year's. Betty Ju and the Chinese girl will be here, too. And if you're scared, Mama, said our big-hearted boy, you can come over and live with me any time. Do you understand? Any time. We thanked him, and he left. I was not thrilled at the prospect of leaving my long, quiet bedroom at the edge of the abyss. Lucas's farm was almost in the center of the village of Olives, noise around you day and night. There was an unpleasant danger approaching Oak Flat, of which none of us knew anything, but God knew. We moved our home from Oak Flat to the village of Olives in December 1948. Four months later, Oak Flat Village was invaded by a band of communist renegades. They were led by a Chinese named Da Ya Quan, a man who was my personal enemy. I had found him out in oppressing the poor Lesu and had stood up for the people. It took his face away, and he hated me from that day on. He was like a demon incarnate. On our way to the Oak Flat Village, he inquired specifically if I was there. And Kudisipa joined hands with Dayang Wang. I shudder to think what would have been my fate if God had not uprooted me and sent me across the Sunwing River just out of reach. When I'd heard how this band had conquered the three lairds, at the six treasuries, the first question I was asked, did Dayawang join them? Yes, was the answer. He was their leader to the laird at the place of action. I was told later that Dayawang had plans to come across the river when God again intervened. The story of how young Laird Wat Duan captured his captors in one bloody night's carnage at the place of action and later had to order the death of his traitor friend Dawayang is told in Stones of Fire. I heard of that death with shuddering gratitude. Another good thing in our removal was that it brought us nearer to the certain areas of the heathenly Sioux, who responded to the gospel before we were driven, finally driven out by the communists. And then, listen to this, there was not one ill effect of that awful affair that I can remember. The paper that John signed, it was just as Lucius had prophesied. The next morning when we awoke, a letter had been thrust under our door. It was signed by the RSBC students from the Mid-Sawin. It was something like this. Dear Pastor Coon, we are leaving before dawn so that Pa John will not find out. We hear he planned to go back with us. We don't want such a man for our pastor. We know that you were forced to sign that paper, but we are hurrying back to warn the Sawing Church that it was forced from you. We won't have him. Pa John did not even attempt to claim that pastorate. He was feared and abhorred everywhere he went. Finally, he wrote us an apology, confessing how wrong he had been. Still, no one wanted him. Finally, he deserted Ruth, who, lazy and idle all her life, then had to work for her own living. But you remember that summer we had one student come 17 days' journey to study with us. Everywhere the churches had been warned against Pajan, 
The last I heard, it was six years later, he was still digging roads in Burma for the government and still claiming to be a Christian. Satan is a merciless master. And what about Kuda Sapa, the green bay tree, Psalm 37.5? He never expected Dao Yawan to lose and Lei Duan to win. When that happened, he fled for his life and hid in caves of the mountains. Lei Duan moved over to the village of Olives, and one evening I overheard him next door talking to some spies he was sending across the river to hunt down Kudusapa. When you find him, I'm going to skin him alive, he snorted angrily. They did that in the canyon. My heart failed me. I could not wish that for any enemy, and I started to pray that Kudusipa would repent so that God could deliver him. I had no faith that he would. I just prayed that way. It's unbelievable what our God can do. First, we heard that Kudusipa had brought pardon by a huge gift to the Laird and many smooth protests that he had no idea that Dawayan, the Laird's own covenant friend, had any evil purposes in that trip, and so on and so on. I was totally unprepared for what happened next. My daily records show that on Saturday, January 14, 1950, Kudusipa arrived in the village of Olives to confess his faults to Mr. Kuhn to ask forgiveness and to make a public apology to the whole church on Sunday and to ask to be taken back into the church. Even after having prayed for this to happen, I had a hard time believing the man to be sincere. Such is the weakness of us human beings. He was brought up before the deacon body and two men missionaries, John and Charles Peterson. The meeting took place in our shanty. The house at Oak Flat, which John built, was roomy, and the one which the Lacey built for us at Olives had a wonderful thatch on the roof, but otherwise it was small. The central room was a dining room, study, medical dispensary, and guest room all in one. The deacons brought Ketu Supa here, and Lucius, who had been typing for the church, had to pick up the typewriter and move into the next room, which was a storeroom. Kitchen, guest room, storeroom were all the shanty contained. We slept in the loft over the storeroom, and I, being a female, was never asked to the meetings of the deacons, and I had not the slightest, smallest ambition to be invited. But since they were in the central room, I had to stay in the kitchen or the storeroom. I did not even try to listen to the conversation, but prayed in my heart that the Lord's will would be done. After about an hour, to my astonishment, John called me in. Kedu Supa had given his confession to us all, he said, and the deacons wonder if there is not something he should confess to Mama too. Would you care to question him? Have you anything against him? It had been a humbling process, and it showed on Kudusipa's face. But I felt it was now that the golden opportunity to deal straight with the man. John, Charles, and the deacons had probably done so, but it would not hurt to put it as I saw it. So I said, I'm just afraid, Kudusipa, that your desire to be reinstated in the church is only to gain a respectable cloak for your late escapades. What escapades, Mama, he asked simply. I named several things I'd heard attributed to him. His face lit up. But, Mama, I've been maligned. It was this way, and they proceeded to explain away his crimes, and with quite obvious enjoyment. He had an amazing facility for wriggling out of situations and a smoothness of explanation that sounded almost plausible. I was exasperated. We were missing the point. That may be so, Kudusupa, I said, but my concern for you is that you have never been born again. I have no personal animosity for you, whatever. I do not hate you. In fact, I've been praying for you. I wish no confessions from you touching myself, but I would like to know your own inner state before the Lord. No amount of public confession can bring you into the kingdom if you have never said, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. He looked abashed. 
then lifted up his eyes to mine and said, I believe my sins are forgiven, Mama. I believe I am born again. Then I said, turning to the deacon, If the deacons pass you for readmittance to the fellowship, I will pass you too. So saying, I left the room and went into the storeroom. Lucius, typing energetically, did not look at me. But as I passed close to him to get some potatoes, he whispered, Straight is the gate and narrow is the way. My mind was now on dinner and I did not get his point. To one side was the big corn bin, to another a rice bin, and then a long potato bin. Space was at a premium. Did he mean that? Kudusupa and the deacons were still in the next room, separated only by a bamboo wall. Lucius made a gesture of impatience, beckoned me to lean closer and whispered, Straight is the gate. Kudusupa wiggles his this way, and he squirms that way. He said it was a mistake, a moment of weakness, a snare of the devil. He wanted to call it by anything but the real name, sin. It is a straight gate. He had to come to it. There's no other way in. I was thrilled with the spiritual insight with which Lucius had watched the poor sinner's evasions. We looked at each other, nodding our heads, and there was a moment that the wonderful fellowship that a joy beyond anything of earth. Both Lucius and I had entered that straight gate. We knew the simple firmness of our Lord in holding men to it. We also knew the freedom and the blessing of the kingdom on the inside. If only the poor sinner will shelf his excuses, knuckle down, and enter in. So, little is the door... Stoop low, all else must go. But oh, how much they win who enter in. And so only one year and four months after Kudusipa, Green Bay Tree Triumph, he had come to apologize and confess what a failure it had been. The platform of defeat and failure, do not fret about it. Do not quickly assume it is the end of the matter. It is not. Wait for God to work and believe our God when he says the gates of hell shall not prevail against his kingdom. I have often been impressed by the dramatic picture so simply disclosed in Second Timothy 4, the last recorded words of Paul. He knew his life was drawing to a close. If he had used physical sight only, he would have had to say, My life work has been a colossal failure. He, the saintliest of men, was in chains, and he was brought thus before Nero, the vilest of men. When a student, one student of Nero's life has said of him, He was only mud and blood. Yet Nero on the throne, and Paul the saint, a prisoner before him. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. Peter wrote later, What a disappointment. These were supposed to be the stalwart saints in Rome at that time. His dear friends had deserted him, but not all. But the Lord stood at my side. Yes, there was one friend who never fails us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. Second Timothy 1.15 Why Asia comprised some of the Paul's most cherished fruit. Years of his life had been spent to establish those young churches. And now in the last epistle he wrote before he died, he says they repudiated him. Doubtless old enemies, the Judaizers, had influenced them. What a melancholy picture. What a way to end a life of such self-sacrifice. Himself in bonds, shortly to be condemned and executed. His friends had deserted him. His spiritual children had repudiated him. Paul, your life is a colossal failure. Oh no, he says quietly, using the eyes of faith. I have fought the good fight. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. There is no defeat in those words. And now we, 19 centuries later, may be judges as to what saw correctly. 
Paul's eyes of faith are the fleshy eyes of sight. The eyes of faith saw correctly. The platform of seemingly defeat and failure will conform us to his image and humility. If we wait patiently, we shall someday see his power working in undreamed of ways. And we shall know him. As with Paul, the Lord will stand by us and strengthen us. Next time, we'll do chapter 10, Between the Scissors Knives. I love you. I'm praying for you. Bye-bye for now.